Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Mega Majumdar was born and raised in Kolkata, India, and moved to the United States to attend college at Harvard University, where she was a Traub scholar. In her debut novel, A Burning, she writes with dazzling assurance at a breakneck pace on complex themes such as class, fate, corruption, justice, and what it feels like to face profound obstacles and yet nurture big dreams in a country spinning towards extremism. Let's join Mega Majumdar in conversation with editor Jordan Pavlin. Mega, I am so honored to be here speaking with you about your magnificent novel. I love it more than I can say. You know this. I know you know this. So I have some questions for you um, yet again. And I just want to start by saying one of the things that I find so amazing about your novel is that it reads in places like a thriller. It has tremendous momentum and velocity and yet at the same time it also grapples with really profound themes about class, corruption, power, fate, and a woman who's struggling to reclaim her voice in a society that is determined to silence her. So I thought maybe we could begin by having you tell us a little bit about the extraordinary heroine at the center of the burning. Um, Yeah, so the person at the center of a burning is a young woman called Jeevan. She is a woman who wants to rise to the middle class. She has a job at a clothing store in a mall. She has newly purchased a smartphone. Um, When she gets into trouble for posting a politically risky comment, and I wanted to look at a character who the narrative that the state puts upon her by looking at her background and by looking at aspects of her identity is not the narrative that she might have chosen for herself. You know, the things that are important to her to be able to take care of her parents, to be able to give them a better life, to be able to ease her mother's and father's suffering. Those things are not part of the narrative that this extremist state constructs for her. And another thing that is is really striking is that while the novel is set in India, um, it seems to resonate almost uncannily with the present moment in contemporary America. Can can you speak a little bit about about that and also about how much of that was intentional? Yeah, you know, I had not anticipated that the book would launch in such a moment in the US while we are in the middle of such a movement and uprising. And I think it has been very interesting to see that when I started writing this book, it was in a similar mood of thinking about, well, how do people move forward through these oppressive and discriminatory systems? You know, how do they move forward with their dreams intact and their spirits intact and their humor intact? Um, And I think those questions about living under these systems are questions that are at the front of mind for so many of us here. Um, So that has been really 
interesting to see. I can't say that I, you know, intentionally worked toward this kind of resonance. I think the thing that I leaned into was the specificity of the Indian situation. And I hoped that by leaning into that specificity, there would be a world of universal resonances that would open up, um, that people would see how this is a book as much about, you know, resistance in various kinds of situations, even beyond the Indian situation. And it does have all of those resonances, no question. And I think that's one of the reasons it's striking such a nerve today and being embraced the way it is. Um, it's a novel that seems to hurtle inexorably toward a terrible tragedy. And yet, at the same time, along the way, there are moments of tremendous humor and lightness and levity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Lovely, who brings such exuberance and warmth into a burning? Lovely is a character in the book who is a hijra, which is a particular um, Indian social category at the intersection of gender and class and religion. And she is thought to have a close connection to the divine. So she's welcomed to bless newborns and bless people at weddings. But at the same time, she's looked down upon. Um, people don't like having her near their businesses or their stores. Um, they want her to go away. And she's someone who intimately knows what it is like to have shame heaped upon you. And I think part of Lovely's humor and spirit and her constant teasing and joking and laughing comes from facing this reality where she recognizes that other people want to shame her, but she doesn't accept that shame. She, she doesn't um, allow them to put her down in the way that they want to. And so her humor, I think, is very hard won. But you are right that I did want to write this character who would be so full of joy and so full of defiance and really fun to sink into and be with. So that's where Lovely came from. I just absolutely adore her. Um, I am curious to know how you settled on her particular idiom. Lovely speaks in this non-standard English for those who haven't read the book yet. And through that kind of English, I wanted to gesture toward the complicated colonial history of English in India and how it is now, of course, the language of the elite, the language of the privileged. Um, when I was a kid, we were told that we had to learn English. It was the language of moving up and success later in life. So I think that's a lesson that many of us in India absorb very early. And in Lovely's English, I wanted that sense of striving and aspiration. Um, I wanted to write an English that would be wholly hers, that would settle into her life. I'd love to ask you to speak a bit more about your own childhood. You were raised in India. You came to America at 18 to go to Harvard. I'd love to hear what that experience was like and also how it informed the novel. 
Well, I grew up in Kolkata, which is a really big city um, in India. And I left to go to college here in the U.S. because I felt that I wanted a more rigorous education. I felt that I wanted the chance to learn to read for myself and think for myself and argue. And these were all things that I didn't have in the Indian education system at that time. Um, moving to Harvard was, you know, I was completely stunned that I got in. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking they would call me back and say it was a mistake. They sent the wrong letter. But I found myself in this environment where I was in classes where people were asking me what I thought of texts. It was the first time that I realized, well, you don't just have to listen to a text. You can question it. You can disagree with it. Um, it was very powerful for me to be in those spaces where I was learning to question and think critically. And I think that attentiveness to complexity, that interest in questioning, that curiosity which was nurtured there has definitely shaped how I think and how I look at the world, um, how I'm able to observe. And hopefully there is nuance and richness in the book, which I would definitely trace back to that time at Harvard. There is nuance and richness in the book, no question. Um, and what a brave thing to do to have come here on your own. I know your family is still in India. Um, I wonder, in setting out to write this book, what was the thing that most frightened you? What was the thing you found most daunting? In many ways, well, I feel like I can answer this question on so many different levels. One was I knew I was setting out to write quite a political book and I knew that I would have to do it with force, but also with sensitivity and with respect and with characters who are full and robust and feel like they have rich interior lives. Um, so that felt definitely like a daunting project. And part of what I found a big challenge here was, you know, this whole project of writing a book that is intellectually serious, that puts forward ideas, but that is also entertaining. You know, I wanted to take very seriously this idea that entertaining someone is a matter of skill and craft and hard work. And to create pages where somebody feels that they can just fall into the pages and be swept along in the story how do you construct that? What are the ways in which your sentences must move? What are the ways in which your characters must develop? What kind of clarity must your pages have? How can they make the stakes of this, uh, you know, made up world real? Um, so I felt like there were a lot of craft questions there. I'm, I'm curious to know, um, the novel is written in three voices. Which of the voices came to you first and whether you knew at the outset that there would be three characters and that they would be these three characters? Jordan, you were just talking about all of the elements of this novel and, you know, the ways in which the craft might succeed. And I just want to add that so much of that is your work. 
it would be completely <laughs> foolish and ridiculous for me to sit here and act like I made it all myself. I mean, you know the work that you put in and- You made it all yourself. I, no one has ever needed an editor <laughs> less than you, Mega. I that dispute is incorrect. that fully. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan is very modest for everybody listening, but she's an icon and she has made the pages, including the opening pages, if you're somebody who picks up the book and is taken by the opening pages. It's a brilliant opening and you wrote it, <laughs> every word of it. Um, I, will, I will answer the question and stop embarrassing Jordan. Um, <laughs> I knew that three was the number that I could do justice to for this book. I wanted to write characters who had depth um, and I wanted to write full arcs for them. I wanted to write arcs that would not feel artificially tidy, but that would be satisfying for a reader. Um, and I felt that three was really the perfect number for that. Um, in, a, in a space of realizing that, I also added these short chapters in the book, which are called interludes and they follow minor characters for just a page or two. And the purpose of that, I hope, is that it leaves these doors open for the reader and it helps the reader understand how, well, this particular book follows just these three people, but there are all of these incredible, complex, rich stories that you could choose to follow in this world. That's a wonderful structure for this book. It works brilliantly. Um, it's interesting to me, Mega, that you wear a couple of different hats in your life. Um, you are a, an author, but you are also an editor. Can you speak a little bit about what it is like to straddle those two worlds and live in two different roles? Yes, I'm an editor at a small press called Catapult, and I find it so nourishing um, you know, as an editor, you get to take on the work of people who's, people who you so admire, you know, you get to take on work where you read the pages and you think, I have to share this with everyone. You want to tell your friends, read this right away. Um, so to be in the place of boosting other people's work feels very meaningful and joyful to me. And it's also a chance to think with other really thoughtful people, to see what they are doing with their sentences, to see what they're doing with their chapters, structure, what they're bringing into collision in their pages, what they are teasing apart. Um, it's such a lesson in craft and storytelling always. Um, I find it very energizing. What is it like to publish a novel during a pandemic, how has it been being on the virtual road? Well, I have been so grateful that there have been so many virtual events. Um, and that's all thanks to Gabrielle Brooks, who has led publicity for this book and who has been such a fierce and passionate and incredibly generous advocate for this book. So if you're listening and you've seen me do a bookstore event or something like that, that is all thanks to Gabrielle. Um, I have been so grateful, you know, 
um, someday I hope that I will get to go to all of these bookstores and thank the people in person. But during this time, this is, I think, the best thing that we can do. And hopefully, you know, 45 minutes, an hour of chatting about fiction and writing and storytelling feels energizing and feels like a space of rest for other people, too. That is what I hope. I have to say that I have found it, um, I have found solace in and, and community in these virtual events in a way I never could have anticipated. It feels extraordinary to me that we can still come together somehow during this time and that um, the, the thing bringing us together is, is writing and storytelling. It's, I, I find it very moving and I can say that I am going to many more virtual events than I ever might have gone to in person. So that is an unexpected um, delight. Um, I, of course, have to ask you about the books and writers um, that have influenced you in your life, both as a reader and as a writer, and also about books you might be reading now by um, other contemporary writers whose novels are just coming out. This is such a long list. I love writers like Jhumpa Lahiri. Um, I think she is brilliant. I love Arundhati Roy. Um, recently, there was this book by, a nonfiction book by a writer called Snigdha Poonam called Dreamers. And it was all about millennials in India. It was all about these people in small towns who are hustling and making their ways forward and chasing big dreams. And I found that book so energizing. Um, recently, I've been reading... Um, I've actually gone back to one of my favorite books, which is No Violet Bulawayo's book, We Need New Names. And the thing that stays with me about that book is it has these incredibly rich child characters. And for anybody listening who is also writing and perhaps writing child characters, they are so hard to write with complexity. Um, and she does that. These kids are mischievous and spirited. Um, they Dream of a Better Life. I really love that book. Um, oh my God, there are so many. I'm just looking at the pile <laughs> next to me. And uh, oh, one, maybe the last book that I'll mention is um, a book called The Atlas of Reds and Blues by a writer called Devi Laskar. And this book came out a couple years ago, but I've been thinking of it lately. It's about, it's a novel about an Indian American woman who is shot by a police officer in her driveway. And in that wounded state, she reflects on her whole life and everything that brought her to that moment. It's a really magnificent book. What have you been reading, Jordan? To be honest, I've been reading exclusively manuscripts, but really exciting ones. So no complaints from me, no complaints from me. Okay, one last question. What advice do you have for a young writer who might be just setting out on this journey? Again, there are so many different ways in which this response could branch out. One thing I might say is to 
think about the thing that makes you angry or that moves you or that brings you the greatest joy and to write from that place. I think that is the place from which so much energy comes onto the page and revering that place and respecting the integrity of that feeling is so important, especially as you are working on building a longer narrative and sustaining your own interest in it. Beautiful. So eloquent. Meg, I am so happy to see you. I am so happy to be speaking about your brilliant novel. And, Same, um, Jordan. It's such, such an a, honor to be with you, always. It's my honor. I, I still can't believe I get to say, oh, Jordan, my editor, because you are truly an icon and you have lifted the book up in incredible ways and opened so many doors for it so thank you for giving this book this life it's been a privilege mega and now here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook courtesy of penguin random house audio you smell like smoke my mother said to me so I rubbed an oval of soap in my hair and poured a whole bucket of water on myself before a neighbor complained that I was wasting the morning supply. There was a curfew that day. On the main street, a police jeep would creep by every half hour. Daily wage laborers, compelled to work, would come home with arms raised to show they had no weapons. In bed, my wet hair spread on the pillow. I picked up my new phone, purchased with my own salary, screen guard still attached. On Facebook, there was only one conversation. These terrorists attacked the wrong neighborhood. Hashtag Kolabagan train attack. Hashtag undefeated. Friends, if you have 50 rupees, skip your samosas today and donate to... The more I scrolled, the more Facebook unrolled. This news clip, exclusively from 24 Hours, shows how Candlelight Vigil at The night before, I had been at the railway station, no more than a 15-minute walk from my house. I ought to have seen the men who stole up to the open windows and threw flaming torches into the halted train, but all I saw were carriages, burning, their doors locked from the outside, and dangerously hot. The fire spread to huts bordering the station, smoke filling the chests of those who lived there. More than a hundred people died. The government promised compensation to the families of the dead. Eighty thousand rupees! Which, well, the government promises many things. In a video, to the dozen microphones thrust at his chin, the chief minister was saying, Let the authorities investigate. Somebody had spliced this comment with a video of policemen scratching their heads. It made me laugh. I admired these strangers on Facebook who said anything they wanted to. They were not afraid of making jokes. Whether it was about the police or the ministers, they had their fun. And wasn't that freedom? I hoped that after a few more salary slips, after I rose to be a senior sales clerk of pantaloons, I would be free in that way too. Then, in a video clip further down the page, a woman came forward, her hair flying, 
her nose running, a wet trail down to her lips, her eyes red. She was standing on the sloping platform of our small railway station. Into the microphone, she screamed, There was a jeep full of policemen right there. Ask them why they stood around and watched while my husband burned. He tried to open the door and save my daughter. He tried and tried. I shared that video. I added a caption. Policemen paid by the government watched and did nothing while this innocent woman lost everything, I wrote. I laid the phone next to my head and dozed. The heat brought sleep to my eyes. When I checked my phone next, there were only two likes. A half hour later, still two likes. Then, a woman, I don't know who, commented on my post. How do you know this person is not faking it? Maybe she wants attention. I sat up. Was I friends with this person? In her profile picture, she was posing in a bathroom. Did you even watch the video? I replied. The words of the heartless woman drifted in my mind. I was irritated by her, but there was excitement too. This was not the frustration of no water in the municipal pump or power cut on the hottest night. Wasn't this a kind of leisure dressed up as agitation? For me, the day was a holiday after all. My mother was cooking fish so small we would eat them bones and tail. My father was taking in the sun. His back pain eased. Under my thumb, I watched post after post about the train attack earn fifty likes, a hundred likes, three hundred likes. Nobody liked my reply. And then, in the small glowing screen, I wrote a foolish thing. I wrote a dangerous thing, a thing nobody like me should ever think, let alone write. Forgive me, Ma. If the police didn't help ordinary people like you and me, if the police watched them die, doesn't that mean, I wrote on Facebook, that the government is also a terrorist? Outside the door, a man slowly pedaled his rickshaw, the only passenger his child, the horn going paw-paw for her glee. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us. 